Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So prediabetes is basically the precursor, the baby condition of type 2 diabetes. And both of those conditions have a precursor to them, which is called insulin resistance. You, as a normal, non-diabetic individual, can develop this thing called insulin resistance. Over the course of time, insulin resistance can then progress to prediabetes, where your blood glucose control gets a little bit more variable. Once you develop prediabetes, if you don't correct it, you don't recognize it, it's not diagnosed, you don't make the right lifestyle changes, prediabetes can progress into type 2 diabetes, where your blood glucose control gets a lot worse. We have 80 million people in the U.S. alone living with prediabetes who are undiagnosed. Plus 25 million people who are diagnosed with diabetes already, which is 100 million people, and that's approximately one-third of the U.S. population. population. That's Robbie Barbero and Cyrus Cambada from Mastering Diabetes, and this is the Plant Proof Podcast. Beautiful friends, welcome back to another episode. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I hope that you've been keeping well. For new listeners, I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 12, just about to turn 13. And type 1 diabetes is the form where your pancreas is damaged. We don't know exactly why or how. And at that time, my family was following a standard American diet. My older brother also had type 1 diabetes. So I was very familiar with the condition. It didn't like shatter my life. I was really lucky to have parents that were just like, you know what? It's going to be okay. You still can do whatever you want with your life, your dreams. You know, this isn't going to stop you. It's just an inconvenience. Well, I had an endocrinologist, had a psychologist, a nutritionist. There was no mention of you can actually improve insulin sensitivity. You can reduce your chances for complications. None of that. Actually, there's an emphasis of eat whatever you want. It was like, try and be normal. This is still going on in the world of type 1 diabetes the focus on you can just be normal. We want you to feel like you can still eat candy bars and cake and go to parties, just take the proper amount of insulin, which is in hindsight, it's a big mistake because this is actually a great opportunity to improve your health. And Cyrus and I both believe at this point, our health is going to be better off because we got this diagnosis and forced us to learn about how to change our life. I follow the standard American diet and I got a lot of the symptoms of the standard American diet. So I had terrible acne, I had plantar fasciitis, I would get warts on my feet, and I took allergy medication, but would still get sick all year round. Nasonex, Claritin D, still got sick. I heard a podcast with Doug Graham, and he was talking about eating fruits and greens, a very simple diet, and how that can cleanse your body, and that can help you get rid of heavy metals through nutrition. And I'm like, wow, I've been avoiding fruit for all this time, and this sounds really, really good. This is November 2006. His book comes out in December 2006. I read it straight through. 
Cyrus is one of the testimonials in the book, in the back. I'm like, wait a minute, this is incredible. So that was the beginning. And then what I started to experience is I started to feel amazing. Like that was it. Now I begin to take more insulin. My total insulin requirements increased from the 10 I was taking, but my insulin sensitivity, how many grams of carbohydrate I could eat for the one unit of insulin started to increase dramatically. And I began to learn more about that. And I started reading about this and a lot of this, you know, the research in this topic got on this, you know, field of plant-based nutrition. And that's really what has led me to be so diligent and committed to the diet. I mean, it's been 12 years and there is no veering. And Cyrus and I are both that way. I sort of built that habit and just being so committed for so many years. Now I just don't know any other way. Through doing this work with Doug Graham and beginning to eat fruits and, and greens and just a simple diet, like I felt amazing. And my skin was the clearest it had ever been. I wasn't taking any more allergy medications. Plantar fasciitis was a thing of the past. And I was just feeling great. And so it really has just kept that way for the past 12 years. So now back on the plant-based ketogenic diet, 30 grams of carbohydrate per day, 10 units of insulin. That's a three to one ratio. Now I'm eating about 750 grams of carbohydrate per day and using about 34 units of insulin. That's like a 22 to one ratio. And a normal healthy pancreas is going to secrete somewhere between 30 and 50. Like that's a rough ballpark range of a healthy pancreas will secrete that much insulin. So I'm eating way more carbohydrate than people suggest and using a normal amount of insulin. So I was diagnosed with type one in 2002. So I was 22 years old. I was a senior in college, going to Stanford University. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I felt terrible. And uh, I get to a point where I just like, I couldn't concentrate. And I did remember that I was sort of feeling low energy. And every time I took a glass of water, I would put the glass down on the table. And then I was like, whoa, I think I'm thirstier. How'd that happen? And then I would take another sip and I put it down. And I was like, I think I'm still thirstier. Like it was just getting worse and worse and worse. So that happened for like 24 hours. And then I switched to Gatorade because I was like, maybe I'm electrolyte depleted. So then I started drinking Gatorade and then that didn't solve the problem. So finally I picked up the phone and I called my sister and she's a doctor of osteopathy and she's brilliant. And I said, Hey, Shanaz, what is happening to me? Why am I so thirsty all the time? And she knew instantly. I mean, she's an encyclopedia. She's like, let me guess. You're also peeing frequently. Right. And I was like, yep, I'm peeing like every 30 minutes. So when your blood glucose gets quite elevated, like mine was up in the 600s, which is six times higher than it needed to be. The telltale symptoms are frequent thirst, insatiable thirst, frequent urination, cramping when you go to sleep, unexplained weight loss and lethargy. So physiologically, what's happening is that the, the concentration of glucose in your blood is higher than it needs to be. So again, the average blood glucose range, what you're supposed to be, you know, if we checked yours at any given moment of the day, you'd be between about 80 and 130 all day long, every single day. That's where it's supposed to be. As soon as you start to creep up 150, 200, 250, 400, 450, then your brain basically says, oh, wait a minute, let's get the amount of glucose down. And one simple way to get the amount of glucose down is to just take on more fluid. So let's drink some more water. So you get thirsty and then you start to drink more water. And then as a result of that, you're now pushing fluids. So as a result of, you know, taking on such a much larger volume of water, urinating more frequently. But when you urinate, you also uh, deplete yourself of electrolytes. So now you're basically just forcing water in to dilute the glucose in your blood. And then you're peeing out glucose and you're peeing out electrolytes. So then you become electrolyte depleted. And then as a result of that, the cramping can set in. And then also because glucose is trapped in your blood and it can't get into tissues, 
tissues are basically starving in effect. So they're not getting the energy supply that they need, which means that your adipose tissue checks in and goes, oh, hey, wait a minute, I got a bunch of energy in here. So then you start to burn your own or catabolize your own body fat stores. And as a result of that, you start losing weight. Most people don't feel it. They have, they're basically asymptomatic until that threshold is hit. And that threshold is called DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. And it's basically just a complicated way of, of describing the symptomology that we just described. So, you know, type one diabetes and Ravi, nobody knows the answer, but it probably beta cells were losing function and losing their ability to secrete insulin for, it could be two months. It could be six months. It could be three years right? Same thing with me. They were, they were declining over the course of time, but then all of a sudden you get to a point where you're at a critically low insulin production capacity. And then at that point, all of a sudden, boom, alarm bells go off, blood glucose starts to increase, brain starts to get involved, electrolytes start to flush, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I knew that type one diabetes was serious. Like if, if it was like, oh yeah, you have a wart on your knee, you know, come back for a follow-up appointment. We'll get rid of it. I would have been like, okay, no big deal. But this is like, oh, hey, by the way, you're going to have to inject insulin every single day for the rest of your life. Every single time you eat, you're going to have to worry about the food that you're putting on your plate and don't make a mistake because if you do, it could be life-threatening. And so I'm just like, oh my God, what the heck just happened to me, right? So long story short, I, I continue my life and they gave me this, uh, this carbohydrate counting guide and they basically put the fear of God in me and they said, if you eat carbohydrate-rich food, like breads, like cereals, like pasta, fruits, potatoes, you name it, your blood glucose will go up. And as a result of that, you'll need more insulin. So don't eat carbohydrate containing foods or eat them in very small amounts. Eat a low carbohydrate diet, meat, chicken, fish, oil, cheese. And I was like, okay, great. You're telling a 22 year old guy who kind of eats like a carnivore to begin with to eat more carnivorously. And I was like, sounds great. This is the greatest diagnosis I've ever had before, right? So I started doing that. And uh, it was supposed to make my blood glucose much more controllable, but that did not happen. So over the course of the next year, blood glucose was all over the place. It was a roller coaster. I really wish I had like saved the blood glucose values and readings from that time because it was like, you know, I'm trained as a mechanical engineer and I'm taught and trained how to like understand complex systems. And this was one system I just could not control no matter how hard I tried. It didn't matter what I ate or when I didn't eat or how much I exercised or how much I slept or how much I stressed or how much I didn't stress. My blood glucose was just all over the place. So then one day I came home from work and uh, I was excited to eat dinner. It was like six o'clock PM. So I checked my blood glucose and I was hoping it would be like, a, I don't know, like a, a 80 or a hundred. And glucose was like 280. And I was pissed because I had done so much work leading up to that to get a good blood glucose value at that moment in time so that I could eat dinner. I had exercised, I had played soccer, I went to the gym and I had eaten a quote unquote healthy, moderate diet leading up to that. And then I get this 280 and I got so mad. So I picked up my blood glucose meter and I just, uh, I, it was just filled with rage and I just threw the thing against the wall and it just shattered. And then I just fell into the couch and it, I just sunk into it and I just started crying. At that moment in time, I decided, okay, I'm going to make a change. There's got to be some other methodology that might work better. And so I started reading and attending scientific lectures. And I got a recipe book and tried to just learn. I was like, you know, this food thing that might, might have something to do with it. Right. And there was a little voice in the back of my head that just said, Cyrus, learn how to eat, learn how to eat. You don't know how to eat. Your parents don't, they don't know the science of nutrition. Nobody, you know, knows the science of nutrition, figure it out. And I was like, wow. Okay, sweet. Let's do this. 
So then I, I just started learning. And I ended up meeting Doug Graham. He said, why don't you come to my retreat? I'll show you how you can change your diet and how you're going to feel a lot better. And he was very confident. So I said, great. So I showed up at his retreat. We were there for a week. Within one day, 24 hours of eating the Doug Graham way, eating lots of fruits and lots of vegetables. That was it. Nothing else. Papayas, mangoes, bananas, dates. I mean, these are all foods that I had, they were shunned earlier. I started eating a ton of these things. My blood glucose plummeted. I'm thinking, oh my God, it's going to go way higher because they're carbohydrate rich and I'm going to need a ton more insulin, right? Neither one of those is true. Blood glucose, boom, came down. Hypoglycemic once, twice, three times, four times, middle of the night, middle of the night again. And I was like, holy crap. So then I had to start, you know, backing off on the amount of insulin I gave myself. So I went from injecting 45 units a day to 37 units a day, to 33 units a day, to 31 units a day, to 28 units a day within one week. So long story short, I uh, went back to school. I put myself through graduate school. I went to UC Berkeley, got a PhD while I was there, studied the, the biochemistry of insulin resistance so that I could really try and learn the, the molecular level details of nutritional biochemistry, because that's the subject that basically is the, the basis for nutrition. And so while I was at UC Berkeley, I got to study why, you know, what causes insulin resistance, which we'll get into more detail about how to reverse insulin resistance and why that's the cause of prediabetes and type two diabetes. But most importantly, you know, what factors in the diet exacerbate and make worse blood glucose control and what factors in your diet make your blood glucose control better. So it was the greatest experience, like the greatest experience of all time to be able to like learn on a piece of paper and perform experiments about a thing that I also had. So I was like my own experimental test bed to a certain extent. And I could use my previous experience in guiding my book experience. And the two of them were playing off each other beautifully. Think of diabetes as basically being like an umbrella term that describes multiple different types. So type one diabetes is an autoimmune version of diabetes. And autoimmune is a fancy way of saying your own immune system has been tricked into creating antibodies that go and destroy proteins that are located either on the beta cells, the insulin secreting beta cells, or they're specifically damaging and degrading insulin. Okay. So your own immune system is actually the, the quote unquote cause of type one diabetes. Type 1.5 diabetes is type one diabetes that sets in as an adult. Okay. So type one diabetes generally happens in young kids. It can happen at the age of two, at the age of five, at the age of 15, you know, generally in juveniles and usually it was called juvenile onset, but now people are developing autoimmune diabetes at later and later ages. So it's not uncommon to run into somebody who's like, oh yeah, I just got diagnosed with type one diabetes and I'm 47, right? And so what they're developing is, is called type 1.5, which basically means you're older than the age of 30. You have autoimmunity, except the autoimmunity that, that you express at that time at an advanced age is a little bit less strong than the autoimmunity that Robbie and myself. So there's actually a substantial body of research that shows that there are antigens, which are basically like the, they're molecules that can trigger an autoimmune reaction. And these antigens are found in many different foods. They're found in cow's milk. Uh, they're also found in meat as well. One of them is called mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis, MAP. It's an example of uh, a mycobacterium or bacteria that can trigger an autoimmune reaction. And so, you know, mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis is an infectious bacteria which livestock get. So we're talking about like cows in an industrial farm. They'll get this inside of their digestive system. And if it's untreated, the cow can die. So they get this thing called Yone's disease. 
and it causes muscle wasting and death. Some of them will develop an MAP infection and then it won't be caught in time. And then when they go to slaughter, the MAP actually gets exposed and it gets on the gloves and the boots of the workers. And then as a result of that, when they're actually packaging the meat, now the MAP gets inside of the meat. And then when the meat gets to the grocery store, the MAP is inside of the grocery store. And then when you cook it, some of that MAP is actually resistant to heat. And then you eat it and you're like, oh, look, it's a well-done burger, live MAP inside of that. You put it inside of your body. As you're exposed to it more and more and more, you can actually then ingest that MAP, which is biologically active inside of you. And then it can trigger autoimmunity, which can then result in type 1 diabetes. So that's one example. There's also cow's milk protein has been shown over and over and over again to be a potential cause. And then there's also a virus, the Coxsackie virus, which has many different strains. And that Coxsackie virus can also trigger autoimmunity as well. So we know about these triggers. They're all over the environment. They're in our food supply, you name it. But yet, you know, a lot of the quote unquote experts don't necessarily want to point a finger at any one thing and say, oh, it's, what is this? In reality, it's sort of a collection of different environmental factors. Then we have prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. So prediabetes is basically the precursor, the baby condition of type 2 diabetes. And both of those conditions have a precursor to them, which is called insulin resistance. Okay. So you as a normal non-diabetic individual can develop this thing called insulin resistance. And we'll get into detail about what that is. If you develop insulin resistance over the course of time, insulin resistance can then progress to prediabetes where your blood glucose control gets a little bit more variable, just a little bit. Once you develop prediabetes, if you don't correct it, you don't recognize it, it's not diagnosed, you don't make the right lifestyle changes, prediabetes can progress into type 2 diabetes where your blood glucose control gets a lot worse. So at that point, you go from having a baby condition that is very reversible into a condition that is still reversible, but yet harder to reverse for sure. So you go from being normal, you know, non-diabetic, which is you can tolerate plenty of glucose and carbohydrate-rich foods, no problem, to pre-diabetic where it becomes a little bit more challenging, to type 2 diabetic where it becomes significantly challenging. We have 80 million people in the U.S. alone living with pre-diabetes who are undiagnosed. 80 million. It comes from the ADA. There are more people living with undiagnosed pre-diabetes than there are living with diagnosed pre-diabetes. Yeah. Even when you get diagnosed with pre-diabetes, a lot of people still don't want to change their lifestyle. Give me a pill. I'm not going to exercise. No, sorry. I'll deal with it. But, you know, I don't want to make any assumptions. There's a lot of people who are trying to change it, and that's awesome. Those are the people that we like to talk to. But, you know, you might hear these statistics of like one in three people by 2020, one in three people are going to be living with diabetes. What they're referring to are the 25 million people who are diagnosed with diabetes already, plus the 80 million people that don't know they have diabetes, which is 100 million people. And that's approximately one third of the U.S. population. At its core, what insulin resistance is, is think of it as like insulin inefficiency. Okay. The inability of insulin to do its job properly or a, a declining ability of insulin to elicit its mi biological effects. What insulin is designed to do is insulin drives glucose from your blood into a tissue. That's it, okay? That's, that's the primary function of insulin. Insulin also is one of the most powerful anabolic hormones in your body. And insulin has about conservatively 1,000 other functions. It stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis. It stimulates DNA repair, RNA synthesis, you name it. Fatty acid uptake, fatty acid synthesis. It, it's just the, the list goes on and on and on. But the number one most important thing that insulin is designed to do is actually take glucose from the blood and transport it inside of your liver, inside of your muscle, and to a certain extent, inside of your brain. 
So the cell will, you know, a cell in your muscle, as an example, will uptake glucose under the influence of insulin and it will import glucose and it will say, hey, cool. Thanks a lot, insulin. Appreciate it. And then it can choose what it wants to do with it. So it can burn it immediately and run it right into the, the mitochondria and get some ATP out of it. It can store it as glycogen or it can put it down into other metabolic pathways. Okay. But for the most part, it's basically either going to burn it or it's going to store it. So what insulin resistance really is, is it's a condition that is caused by the accumulation of excess fatty acids in tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fatty acids. I'll say that one more time. Insulin resistance is caused by the accumulation of excess fat in tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fat. So there's only one tissue in your body which is actually designed, metabolically designed to store large quantities of fat, adipose tissue or fat tissue. Your adipose tissue is all over your body. You got some in your neck, you got some in your cheeks, it's in your butt, it's in your quads, you name it, it's all over the place. And that tissue is actually specifically designed enzymatically to be able to uptake large quantities of fatty acids when they are present in your diet and to store them for long periods of time. And I mean long periods of time, months to years. And then also to get rid of that fat, those fatty acids when the time is right. Uh, and so adipose tissue is actually, most people think of it as being like this, this dangerous tissue, but in reality, it's actually protective. And so uh, it protects other tissues from uptaking excess fatty acids. It's a perfectly designed system. Now, the problem is that when you eat a diet that is high in fat, and we can go into definition of what that really means, but let's just say for the time being, you're eating a diet that's high in fat. Uh, those fatty acids, when they enter your mouth, they travel down to your esophagus, they get inside of your stomach, they start to get denatured and sort of, you know, ripped apart, and then they get put inside of your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine, these fatty acids are then pulled into your lymph system, transported into your blood, and then they're in circulation inside of your blood. And from your blood, they're using your blood as a highway system to get wherever they want. And under ideal situations, if I had to design the human body on a piece of paper, what I would do is I would make it so that when those fatty acids get inside of your blood, they can only go into one place. And that would be your adipose tissue. That's exactly, I would just say, boom, go straight into adipose tissue and stay there until you have an opportunity to get rid of it. But in reality, what ends up happening is those fatty acids go into your adipose tissue and they also go into your liver and they also go into your muscle and they also go into your pancreas and they also go into your kidney and so on and so forth. They go everywhere, okay? Because tissues all over your body have access to your blood. And so as a result of that, you eat a high fat meal and you get storage of fat inside of your adipose, but also into non-adipose tissue. Then the next time you eat a high fat meal, the same thing happens. Then the next time, the same thing happens and over and over and over again. And to a certain extent, some of those fatty acids are also stored in, or are maintained inside of your blood. And so they just end up circulating and getting deposited in tissues all over the place. Now, the problem is that over the course of time, as you accumulate fat inside of your muscle and inside of your liver, in particular, those two tissues that are specifically designed to operate using small amounts of fatty acids and large amounts of glucose, the fat can become overwhelming. So you store fat inside of your liver and muscle today, and then you do it again tomorrow and so on and so forth. And over the course of time, those two tissues end up developing an excess quantity of fatty acids. And as a result of developing too many fatty acids inside of them, now their ability to uptake glucose gets compromised. And so the next time you go and eat a carbohydrate-rich food, like let's say Robbie had high-fat breakfast for the last week, and maybe he had some high-fat lunches and a couple of dinners. And then Robbie goes to try and eat a mango, okay? The mango is primarily carbohydrate energy. So the mango gets broken down from carbohydrates into glucose, and now there's thousands of glucose molecules, millions of glucose molecules floating in his blood. And the glucose wants to get inside of tissues. So what the glucose will do is the glucose will circulate, and, and it's looking to find ways to get inside of muscle and inside of liver and inside of his brain. 
but it can't necessarily do that unless it's accompanied by insulin. So Robbie then injects insulin or you have a mango and then your, your pancreas would secrete insulin. So the insulin's job is to come around to the tissues and they say, hey, knock, knock. I got this stuff called glucose in the blood right now. Do you want to take it up? And under normal circumstances, your liver and muscle would say, sure, come on in. And they would open these doors and then they would trap glucose. They would allow the glucose to enter. They'd put them into these things called GLUT4 vesicles or GLUT2 vesicles. And then they would trap it and then they would bring it inside and then they can do whatever they want with it. They can store it or they can burn it. But the problem is that when these tissues have already accumulated an excess quantity of fatty acids, insulin signaling goes out the door. So insulin receptors become less effective. Insulin receptors can't really recognize insulin. So when insulin says, hey, knock, knock, I got this glucose, the insulin receptors are like, I'm sorry, what'd you say? I can't hear you. Can you speak louder? Can you speak louder? The key word is energy, right? The, the, the cell has accumulated an excess quantity of energy. And that energy just happened to come in as, as a fatty acid, which happens to have double the energy density as, as carbohydrate. So it's accumulated a sufficient quantity of energy. And as a result of that, it's basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm full right now. I have a lot of stuff that I already need to burn. And so some of the byproducts of excess accumulated fatty acids include these things called ceramids. And ceramids are these, these really frustrating molecules that can inhibit insulin signaling specifically. And so again, insulin comes by, knock, knock, I got this glucose. Do you want to take it up? And the cells either can't listen to insulin or they respond by saying, are you kidding me? I got all these fatty acids. Let me burn these things first. And then, and then I'll let glucose in. So as a result of that, the glucose is trapped and it's sitting in the blood and it's like, well, all right, now what? I can't get in the liver. I tried. I can't get in the muscle. I tried. I can get in the brain right? But your brain is not going to just take up excess glucose. Your brain is going to sip glucose exactly as much as it needs. And the rest of the glucose is just going to be trapped. It's going to be sitting in your blood. And then when Ravi goes and checks his blood glucose, two hours later, what do you think he sees? He sees a number. He goes, look, I got a 244. I ate a mango two hours later. Oh, looks like the mango was the problem. Sugar is a refined sweetener that you find in the grocery store. It's a white crystal or it's a syrup. And when we use the term sugar to describe those products that are refined sweeteners, then it makes life a lot simpler, okay? The difference between glucose and fructose is that they're, they're two different building blocks and they're, they're not interchangeable with each other, okay? So if you take glucose and you take fructose and you fuse them together, you create this thing called sucrose. And sucrose is table sugar. At the end of the day, what really matters is the form in which fructose entered your mouth. That's the most important thing. Rather than getting stuck inside of like a whole world of fructose biochemistry that nobody's going to understand and nobody's going to remember, what's important is that you got to ask yourself a simple question. Is the fructose you're eating protected? Is it protected or unprotected fructose? If it's protected fructose and it comes in with vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, all of its behind the scenes buddies, that fructose is not going to be metabolically harmful. That fructose is actually going to be, it's packaged in, a, in an amount and it's prepackaged with these protective ingredients that are actually going to prevent it from becoming a harmful ingredient. Fructose is actually not a complicated molecule. It really isn't. It's just that there are many authors who shall remain nameless who like to over-exaggerate the effects of fructose. Nobody is advocating consuming more unprotected fructose or more refined fructose. Nobody, nobody in the paleo world, nobody in the ketogenic world, nobody in our world. Period, end of story. Fruit is... It's listed as the problem when, again, insulin resistance is the problem. When you eat whole fruit and you chew the fruit, your blood glucose control is excellent. That's all I can say. And when it comes to people are, you know, how do you keep your blood glucose under control? Well, it's because these foods come in a package. It's full of fiber, full of nutrients. These are not 
processed carbohydrates. So in general, my core calorie consumption comes from mangoes, bananas, figs, cherimoya, stone fruit, citrus. It's really fruit. Papaya. Papaya, a lot of papaya and a lot of greens, a lot of spinach, a lot of lettuce, a lot of arugula. I eat a lot of wild blueberries. It's very simple. We have it into green light, yellow light, red light. Green light category foods include fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, intact whole grains. Those are the first four things, and they're listed first for a reason, because we want people to emphasize those foods. You have to learn how to eat carbohydrate-rich foods if you want to be able to stick to this in the long term. Nutrient density, of course, it's important. Everybody agrees you got to have, you know, the other green light foods are non-starchy vegetables, leafy greens, herbs and spices, mushrooms. Everybody pretty much agrees on those foods, no matter what camp you're coming from. They're important. Nutrient density is important. But if you want long-term success living with diabetes, if you want to reverse insulin resistance, you have to understand that you're going to need enough calories to sustain your diet. We see people failing over and over and over again, where they transition to a plant-based diet. They start eating lots of salads and then they get hungry. They're like, I'm, I'm not satisfied because they didn't eat enough calories. This definitely happens with people living with diabetes because they're still afraid of carbohydrate-rich foods. So everything we do is to treat insulin resistance, okay? To re- reverse insulin resistance and maximize insulin sensitivity. That's the one thing we can all focus on together, no matter what form of diabetes you're living with. It's because the number one killer of all people living with diabetes is heart disease. So it doesn't matter if you control your blood glucose on a low-carbohydrate diet. If you're not addressing insulin resistance, you're setting yourself up for some trouble in the long term. You master breakfast, you start there. And once you feel like you got that under control, no matter how long it takes you, it's not a hurry. Take your time. We move on to lunch. And then once you feel good with that, we move on to dinner. And then we can start incorporating things like intermittent fasting. That's a big part of our program. And then you get into daily activity. It's incremental changes. We're trying to set people up for long-term success. That's really the big focus here. Tammy, after seven months, she reduced her A1C from 7.1% to 5.3%. And when she was at 7.1, she was taking 2,000 milligrams of metformin. So that's a medicated A1C. Then her 5.3%, zero metformin, unmedicated A1C, non-diabetic. Before, she also had debilitating knee pain. She couldn't like go to the grocery store without being pained. She had fatty liver disease. Her energy was just awful. So in seven months, she loses 38 pounds. And she sees her fasting blood glucose go from 123 to 93. Fatty liver disease is gone, but she also happened to have insulin tested. So her fasting insulin was 17.4 when she was following a crappy diet. Which is very high. And then she starts eating more carbohydrate-rich foods. She follows the Mastering Diabetes program exactly as we teach it. And she now has a fasting insulin level of 5.2. Which is not high anymore. It's the best high you can ever have. I used to work in the, the, the biotech industry because that's what I did when I got out of graduate school. And I thought that that was a good use of my knowledge and skills. And so I was there for two years. And as I was doing more research, slowly I was dying on the inside. And I got to a point where, you know, six months into my work in biotech, I just was like, I was like, I can't even show up to work anymore. It's just too, too much. Because the direct benefit to real human beings in the real world was non-existent. It just didn't happen. And then once we started this program, it started to be able to benefit people. And you hear stories like Tammy, like Chris, like John, like Raj, like Sana. You mean the list goes on. People look at us and they're like, you changed my life. And like the minute I first heard that, I literally, it was like adrenaline rush. All of a sudden I like started crying 
And I was like, oh my God, this is why we do this. This is why we do this. You, ju- you just can't put a price tag on that. It is like, it is priceless when somebody is like, you know, they've, they've followed the methodology and they've seen such positive change. Like I can go to sleep at night knowing that I'm doing something good for the world. My message is for people to just get started. Just start incorporating more low-fat, plant-based, whole foods into your diet and you will start experiencing benefits. And that will motivate you to go further. It can be overwhelming. It can be scary. But just get started. And you can start with breakfast. And that's it. It's not that hard. Just get started. Keep it super simple. And, you know, diabetes is one of the most confusing chronic diseases that the world has ever seen. But it doesn't have to be that way. And it actually isn't. It's just that human beings tend to complicate things unnecessarily. There we go. I hope you found that interesting instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take. Probably one of the most common questions that I get actually So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by NutriKind. This is a product I formulated for NutriKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. The right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutriKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at PLANTPROOF.com. And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutriKind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you, and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.